As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and open them up to Psalm chapter 1. As you're kind of getting yourself situated, I just first want to say thank you to all of those who helped make last week's barbecue what it was. Uh, We had a lot of people who worked very diligently behind the scenes on our behalf to serve us. They came early and set up. They worked to the services preparing food. Uh, they stayed late to pack up and, and take things back and put them in the appropriate places. Can, I, can we just thank the people who served us so faithfully? It was such a, a gift. and uh, It was a, a huge blessing, and I trust that you're encouraged and just um, always something, something I look forward to, especially with that pulled pork. So good. Um, last long weekend of the summer, <laughs> boo, right? Um, for many of us, um, we understand what this means. Certain death is right around the corner, otherwise known as winter. <laughs> I say that in jest, but uh, I think that some of us have been living in a perpetual spiritual winter. Many of us live in a spiritually cold climate in our lives, and uh, we fail to experience the regular warmth and fire of the presence of God in our lives. And last week, we began a series, just a two-part series, uh, called Personal Revival. And my goal, beginning last week and this week, is simply to point us towards just that, the call to personal revival in each one of our lives. It's something that God calls us to continually, day by day, and last week we looked at three aspects of what produces, what leads to that continuous personal revival in our lives. We looked last week at the idea of remembering our forgiveness, our identity in Christ, the grace that's ours, that we are now living under no condemnation because we're in Christ Jesus. We talked last week about the idea of confessing our brokenness, a reminder that we are broken people in need of God's grace and that we need to be transparent about that if we're going to continually receive from God the working of his spirit. And we saw last week that we were called to pursue our joyfulness, the filling of the spirit, the continual presence of God actively working in our lives. And we ended last week with the reminder that the one thing that prevents, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, that we are not to be drunk on wine for that is debauchery, but we are called to be being filled with the spirit that continual ongoing process, which is a command by God, the one thing that hinders that from being a reality in every one of our lives is sin itself. Sin is what clogs the flow of God's presence into our lives, the working of his spirit in more powerful ways in our lives. And we saw that really that's one part of the equation. And I wanna kinda leap off of of that concept. We talked last week about confessing that to the Lord and saying, God, forgive me for not being a spirit-filled Christian. Forgive me for the sins that are preventing me from being that. But in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, where Paul addresses this idea of being filled with the Spirit, we need not only to see that the removal of sin is incredibly important for this process to be happening, we need to understand what else is involved in Paul's command. Now, at first glance, the idea of be filled with the Spirit seems like an incredibly odd or strange command. You see, to be filled with the Spirit sounds passive, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like something we do. It sounds like something someone else does, namely God himself. And maybe that was a question that you had last week. Isn't that something that the Spirit does? 
I mean, I see that the scripture here, it's telling me to do something, but what exactly am I supposed to do? How do I do something the Spirit ultimately does? That's a really, really good question to be asking. And ultimately, what the Spirit of God through the Word of God is telling us through that command is to do simply this, to get active about being passive. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I want you to understand this concept of being active about being passive. I believe it's, it's, it's so incredibly important to experiencing ongoing personal revival in our lives. Now this idea of being actively passive is not about being lazy. It's not about inactivity in the Christian life. You see, it's a passivity that's more about receptivity. It's more about the position we are in to receive from the Lord It's ultimately about where we choose to receive life from. Now remember last week we defined revival, personal revival, as the bringing of dead areas in our lives to life. And every one of us has these on an ongoing basis where we need the Spirit of God to take what seems to be dead, metaphorically speaking, and breathe life into it. Spiritual vitality, growth, joy, etc., And so this morning, I want us to see that personal revival is really dependent upon two other realities. And it begins with where we choose to receive life, the source of that life. And you can note this and write this down if you're taking notes. If I want personal revival, I must daily listen to the voice of God. So basic so fundamental to Christian life, yet I would argue so easily overlooked, so often misunderstood, so easily pushed to the side in the Christian life. If I want personal revival, I must daily listen to the voice of God. Psalm 1 reminds us that who we listen to ultimately shapes how we live our lives. In fact, I want to just read it for us and then briefly unpack some of it Psalm 1, and it is the first psalm for a reason. It was placed at the beginning for a reason. It really sets the stage for the entire book of Psalms and really living out a life that is pleasing to God. Listen to what it says. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, or satisfied is the man, or thriving is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." This psalm presents two people walking on two different paths that lead to two different ends. He begins by reminding us that one of these paths leads down a path of destruction and death. The other leads down a path of prosperousness and life. The word blessed is so incredibly important. It really does translate into the word happy. Every one of us longs to be happy. Every one of us longs to be filled with joy. Every one of us longs for what God wants to give us. 
The question he answers then is how this is possible. How is it that we live the satisfied, thriving life of vitality in the Lord? And the answer he gives is so clear, it's so obvious to many of us. Really, it involves who we, deter- who we decide we're going to be influenced by, the kind of thinking that's going to persuade us in a particular direction. We can either be persuaded by those who are against God in the world, those who walk not, or those who walk in the counsel of the wicked, those are, are, are the way of the sinners, the seed of the scoffers. All of this is anti-God language, anti-righteous language. You could think of this as really a presentation of the world that we live in. The influences that surround us that are all screaming anti-God message that are screaming a a selfish message to be satisfied apart from God and in the things of the world and in the sins that maybe you're living in. But God presents a different way. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. You see here we're presented with two options. We can stand beneath the water of God's word or the sewage of the world. What you choose to stand under will ultimately determine what you're filled by and what shapes how you live. Either it will leave you wanting or it will leave you satisfied. It will leave you starving for nourishment or it will leave you hungry for more. It will create your desires either way and shape them towards certain goals. It will drive your ambitions. One of these options is showering down cold, fresh, life-giving water. The other is slopping out warm, disease-infested sewage. And the call for us, even in this psalm, is to be actively passive in one sense, but to be reminded that that active passivity is all about our receptivity. Where are we placing ourselves? Under what source of supposed life? I can't be revived, I can't experience personal revival if I do not place myself under the source of life. That's what the psalmist is showing us, by the way, in this beautiful analogy of the tree that he talks about in verse three, that he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. You can see this picture of vitality and flourishing, prosperity, especially in the spiritual sense. This is a picture of life. This is a picture of stability, of strength, of health. It is a picture of ongoing revival. It reminds me so much of John 15, where Jesus uses a similar analogy to describe the Christian life to the disciples. Remember in John chapter 15, he says that I am the true vine. He talks about his father being the vine dresser and and that we're all like branches attached to him. And then over and over and over again, he repeats this word, abide, 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 abide. The same idea of active passivity is found in this word abide. Let me just remind you of what Jesus says. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He says, already you are clean because of the word. Notice the connection here with the source. Because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire. Does that sound reminiscent of Psalm 1 to you? If you abide in me, catch this, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here in that passage, as well as in Psalm 1, we see this deep connection with the word of God, what has been spoken. There is an intentionally, intentionality excuse me, and an active participation on our part. I want you to notice the word, word, and the byproduct of dwelling under the word, of having the word dwell within us, the byproduct in, in both Psalm 1 and John 15 is that you bear much fruit. Now, a Lifeway, a, a Christian organization who does a lot of research, helpful research, they recently did a, a study. This was the largest discipleship study done by any organization. It was a 10-year study where they accumulated just a wealth of information. And their primary goal in this study was trying to determine uh, the lead measures for spiritual growth in a Christian's life. What are the things that add to a Christian's health and growth and vitality? What are the key areas? and they whittled it down, this 10-year study, into four different categories. It's fascinating, and again, it's interesting. We don't need a study to tell these things because the word of God already does, but it is so affirming to see some data behind this. They found out four things. Here's the first thing they found out, that groups matter a lot. Here's what I mean by groups. More than just the Sunday gathering, that groups throughout the week, often gathering with other believers in small groups, or whatever context, Bible studies, whatever, they matter immensely. Those people who are, this is a whole other sermon on small groups, but it is a shameless plug, okay? Those who are in small group settings, they grow exponentially more than those who do not. Now, that obviously, obviously is dependent upon your willingness to participate and engage. Exponentially, they found, this is just, unarguable from the data. Okay, sermon for another time. Shelf that, we'll come back another time. The second thing they found was this, that this is it, listen to this. Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline that is head and shoulders above being more important than any other spiritual discipline in the Christian life. Not, listen to me, listen to me. Bible engagement, not just Bible reading, not simply just Bible learning, but the in-depth, rigorous study whereby the word of God comes the dominating force in your life, directing your life in every way. It is superior, they found, to every other spiritual discipline. The third thing they found was this, that people who engage the Bible, and here's why the, the second one is, is what it is. Listen, people who engage the Bible are engaging more in every other discipline in the Christian life. Do you see the connection there? This is why it's the number one. This is why it's the most important. In other words, those who engage the Bible more faithfully and more regularly in their lives, they pray more, they fast more, they're involved in more mission trips, they serve the body of Christ more, they're more hospitable, they exhibit the fruits of the Spirit a whole lot more, they evangelize more. All of these things they found in this study. They could have saved themselves a lot of time and just read the Bible. This is so important because most of us, I believe even here, maybe many of us are serving and doing so on an empty well. 
in a place that feels like spiritual death, not spiritual life, and maybe the connection is being made for you this morning. The fourth thing they found is this, discipleship and spiritual growth don't happen by accident. It takes intentionality. In other words, if you want personal revival, like, like we said last week, we, we cannot produce personal revival, but we seek it from the one who can. We must seek it. We must seek it. It must become a regular, a regular practice in our lives. And I know what some of you are saying. I, I don't hear God speaking to me. And listen, we can't say that if we have our Bibles closed on our nightstand. You can't say you don't hear God speaking to you if, if your Bible's closed and gathering dust on the nightstand. And I know, we've, listen, this is not original to me. We use it for many of you are like, I want to hear God speak to me. Awesome. Read the Bible. Yeah, but I, I want to hear God speak audibly to me. Great. Read it out loud. See, but the problem is in our engagement with the word of God, so often we do this poorly. We actually don't have good habits when it comes to engaging the word of God. We're reading the word of God, but we're not listening for the voice of God. We're reading it and maybe checking a box. We're reading it the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. I love what uh, pastor and author Jared Wilson says. He uses this phrase that we need to be feeling scripture. Now, before men, you get your back up against the wall. He's not meaning this in an emotional sort of way, okay? It's okay, breathe a second. What he's talking about is, in feeling scripture, there is an intimate familiarity with the word of God that becomes natural and reflexive. You know, you know as, as it was Spurgeon once said of Bunyan, you cut him and he bleeds bibline. Like, it's just in him. And he gives this awesome analogy that I think is really fitting in, in how this should look in a Christian's life. You see, oftentimes, uh, many of us are kind of like this. You, you ever gone to maybe an unfamiliar uh, person's house, you're staying overnight, or you're at a hotel, or something like that. It's just unfamiliar territory. And so the light goes out, and it's pitch black at night, and you got to wake up in the middle of the night, you know, whatever. you got to get a drink. you got to run to the bathroom, and you just find yourself bumping and stumbling along. You know, fall, you ever fallen flat on your face? And, okay, I'm just alone in that? Okay. And the difference in, in being in your own home, right? It could be pitch black, the middle of the night, the, the same circumstance, you gotta wake up and go get a glass of water and with the lights out in pitch black, you can navigate your way through your bedroom because you're so familiar with the contents of your room. He says, that's how we ought to be with the word of God. We ought to be so familiar with the overarching storyline of the word of God. We ought to be so familiar with the heart of redemption in the word of God. We ought to be so familiar with the, the authors of scripture in their unique storytelling, but how they all point to the same reality. This deep knowledge that produces an instinctual and reflexive awareness in our lives. See, a lot of times our problem is that we approach the Bible with a kind of utilitarian perspective. It's about what, what it can do for me primarily. We read it asking how we might use it rather than how it might use us. And the key to changing in the Christian life is, is in the key to changing this aspect of how we approach the word of God is learning to listen to the voice of God in scripture. And this will be transformative for many here. I really believe this. It's been transformative in my life over time. And every time I come back to this, it's just like God is reminding me of what is so fundamental and so critical for my growth and for my daily thriving in him. Listen, we tend to approach the Bible very often. Many of us lean on this spectrum by looking for a purely informational exchange to learn something. 
And of course, listen, I don't want to diminish that in any way. We always will learn something and we could never exhaust the riches and the wealth and the knowledge of its information. But let me say this so carefully but so clearly, the primary reason to read the Bible is not for information but for transformation. And there is a world of difference between those two. Yes, they're interrelated. Transformation is the primary reason the written word of God exists. I want to maybe challenge the way some of you think about the word of God in the scriptures for a moment. If I want to, let me set the stage like this. Let me just ask you a real quick question. If I was to put you on the spot and bring you up on the stage in front of everybody, which would be your favorite thing in the world, and ask you to answer this question, what is the highest form of worship in the Christian life? What would your answer be? What is the highest form of worship in the Christian life? Many of us, our default goes towards music, doesn't it? Well, obviously, singing, music. And for sure, the Bible has a lot to say about the importance of singing and music, and especially in response, but maybe let me challenge some of your thinking on this. You see, in the first century culture that Jesus lived in, And even further back than that, the highest form of worship was the study of the Bible, the study of the scriptures. This is well documented. Because even back then, they realized that the studying of the word would supersede every other practice a person could get involved in because it has this trickle-down effect into your life. It impacts every other discipline. It impacts including your, your singing. In fact, I would argue you cannot worship properly and praise properly without first God revealing himself to you properly. In the Eastern culture, would look at the Bible a little bit differently than we do, especially the Old Testament. Remember, that's all they had. They saw the, the word of God as... Um, some of it being weightier than others, all of it being God-breathed, all of it being inspired, all of it being important, but some of it just more weighty than others. And they actually broke the the Old Testament down into three sections, and even in the New Testament this is referenced. They broke it down into the, the Law or the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Prophets, Um, Prophets began with Joshua, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and so on and so forth, and then the writings. And uh, the writings... um, contain things like the Psalms and the Proverbs and so on and so forth. Now, if you were to ask a first century Jew or go back even further than that, what is the weightiest portion of God's word? What do you think they would say? The law, the Torah, not the prophets, not the writings. Those are important. Those are incredibly important. But the weightiest part was the law. Now, if you were to ask them, what is the weightiest book in the law, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which one is the weightiest of them all? Which one do you think they'd say? You guessed it, Deuteronomy, good job. See, why Deuteronomy? Well, Deuteronomy is kind of like the, you know, the, the cliff notes of the Old Testament, it's a summary, summation of the law and of the Exodus, and they highly valued Deuteronomy. It was incredibly weighty for them. By the way, Do you know which book Jesus quoted from more often than any other book in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy. Now, if you go to a faithful Jew and say, out of the book of Deuteronomy, if you just picked one scripture in Deuteronomy that is the pinnacle of all the other scriptures, the most weighty scripture in the book of Deuteronomy, what would it be? Let me phrase this another way. 
If you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the weightiest scripture in all of the Old Testament? What do you think he'd say? Well, you want to know something? We actually don't have to guess that. Because Jesus was asked that question, wasn't he? Good teacher, which is the greatest commandment of all? And you want to know what he refers to? He refers to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And you know exactly what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in what the, the Jews called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is, again, one of the most central passages to a Jew, even to this day, He points them back to what is the most important aspect of the word of God, and that is the very heart, the love of God. In fact, this verse is telling us that the very purpose of all of life and the goal of all of scripture is to know God for the purpose of loving God. Do you see the connection there? That this isn't just about information. By the way, he goes on to tell parents that they are called and responsible for instructing their children like to an extreme degree to let the word of God be ever present before them, always talking when you lie down and when you rise, when you stand and when you sit, all the time, the word of God, the word of God, why? For information? No, because it was always intended to produce a deeper love of God. That is where all true change and personal revival occurs. And if you fast forward all the way to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, do you wanna know that the apostle Paul makes a very similar connection? He he says in Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, talking about our, our greatest spiritual act of worship to the Lord, to be giving ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. You wanna know what he equates with being a living sacrifice? To no longer be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You see, he connects, listen, he connects the word of God The renewing there of our mind, the information that is intended always to produce transformation. You see, when the mind is focused on the word of God, the heart's affections, desires, they all follow. We must get into the word of God until the word of God gets into us because it is the word, catch this, this is so important, listen. It is the word that does the work, okay? It is the word that does the work. If you walk out of here with anything, just be reminded of this truth this morning. It is the word that does the work. The spirit of God always operates in conjunction with the word of God to produce renewal and transformation, to produce revival in the heart of a human being. We must engage the word of God so that we can listen to the voice of God. But you see, this requires a great degree of discipline and consistency. Like most Bible study plans that we often do, The goal is to keep us consistent, to keep us on track. But the aim of of engaging scripture, of feeling scripture, as Jared Wilson says, is, listen, ultimately to treasure God's word in our hearts and delight ourselves in God's law and in the God of the law. In verse two of Psalm one, look at what he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night All of our revival is really birthed out of a delight in the law of God. Now listen, there is a cyclical nature to delighting in the law of God and then diving into the word of God. You see, the more we dwell there, the more we delight there. And the more we delight there, the more we dwell there. 
The psalmist connects this idea of delighting in the law of God to meditating on it. And the idea there is to be immersed in it. The word meditate in Hebrew literally means to mutter under your breath. It's as if you're, you're constantly walking around speaking the truth to your heart and you're just verbally right, saying it and it's, it's being digested. I, I recently took my kids for a walk a hike, we go for hikes all the time, and it's a great time. It's usually the time where I just have these great spiritual conversations with my kids. And we were walking along and just looking at the the grass, and we're talking about the word of God, and we start talking about what it means. We start talking about Psalm 1 and Psalm 63, and you know, meditating on the word of God, and and what does that mean, and and they're trying to figure it out. And here's the analogy I use with my kids. I think it's so helpful for for my heart and maybe for you today too. So here's what it means to meditate. I use this analogy of a cow chewing cud. Okay, have you ever watched a cow like chewing cud? It's kind of like watching paint dry, right? And that's why I said to my kids, I say, have you ever, my kids love that. What, what does it look like when a cow is chewing it? Does he chew fast or slow? Slow, thank you. Uh, did, does he eat quickly or does he take a long time? Oh, long time, dad, long time. Painfully long. But you see, meditating on scripture should be just like that. I asked my kids, why do they take so long? Why do they chew so much? And I'm not sure this is the right answer, but this is what I told them anyways. It's to extract all of the nutrients out of it, right? You want to just chew it until you've got every last savory bit of grass. Enjoy it. Ingest it. Henry Blackerby famously wrote these words. Just listen to this. It's going to be so, so helpful. So, so pithy, so short, but so helpful for so many of us this morning. In, in our chaotic culture, listen, we need to have unhurried time with the Lord. Unhurried. How much of our time with the Lord is rushed by a calendar, by a schedule? by our own laziness, our own ability to to prioritize. Our time with the Lord is breezed through and rushed through, if it's there at all. And, And if I could just give you some practical application to this, listen, we need to have daily unhurried time with the Lord. You're saying, Ian, when should I do this? If I was to tell you, listen, this is not, not biblically mandated, but if you're saying, Ian, what's wise? What is the best thing for me to do? Listen, when you wake up in the morning, be in the word of God every single day. You say, well, well why is that necessary? Do we breakfast every morning? Well, no, I intermittent fast. Forget you. Why do you eat breakfast every morning? Because your body craves nutrition. Your body needs fuel. Listen, you run, listen, Jesus said it himself, didn't he? Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every day you wake up, you need to see the word of God as if it's your breakfast, your spiritual breakfast and meal for the day. And you say, why is it so important in the morning? Because it sets the trajectory for your day. It becomes the lens through which you view your day. You're not clouded by all the chaos of the day yet. Your heart is set and established by the word of God for each and every day. It's just wisdom, okay? It's not law, it's just wisdom. It breathes life into every area of our life. 
And you know what, I understand, it's not easy. These kind of habits, they're not easy. But the more we do it, the more reflexive and the more natural it becomes, the more we listen to God's word, the more we are shaped by its message to automatically live the message. That's transformation, AKA revival. I love Psalm 119, 103. On the screen behind me, listen to what the psalmist writes. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is the testimony of someone who experiences daily personal revival from God's word. This is someone who goes to God's word and hears God's voice. And I know that some of you are like, honey, the word of God so often to me tastes like a stale rice cake. Listen, this is not because it's not actually delicious and sweet. It's more often because our palate isn't developed enough or has been damaged by repeated exposure to lesser delights. The more we dwell in scripture, developing a greater taste and feel for it, the less sweet and the less comforting are the things of the world. We need to get our souls out. We need to get out from under the soul-destroying sewage of the world and place ourselves under the soul-reviving water of God's word, and it must be a daily reality in our lives. John 10, 27, Jesus said these words, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. This is the whole point of reading and studying the Bible and engaging in scripture and feeling the scripture. It is, listen, ultimately to encounter the glory of Jesus. And if we aren't doing this, we're missing the whole point. Hearing is ultimately, listen, about seeing. Do you see the connection that is made there? Hearing my voice, they know him as well because they follow him. They hear him, they see him, they follow him. If I want personal revival, I must daily listen to the voice of God and secondly, note this, I must daily look at the glory of God. This will be a much shorter point and it's so interwoven with the first one, you'll see the deep connection here. It really is about the word of God still. I must daily look at the glory of God. It is about listening and it is about seeing and you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and as you're turning there, let me just say that uh, this, is, this is an incredibly important point because most of us in the Christian life, when we think of transformation, when we think of Christianity and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, we instantly run to behavior. Well, what do I do? How do I obey? What do I obey to make myself look like the Christian and please God? And let me just say right out the gates that that's wrong. It's wrong. Let me, let me qualify that. It's wrong in the sense that it's not our primary obligation. God does not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. It is not purely about the external behaviors to the rules that matter to God. It is about a heart after God. We saw that last week, but let me bring it forward to this week. It is all about the heart before God. In the Christian life, one of the essential ingredients to personal revival is the practice, listen, here it is, of beholding before behaving. Our problem so often in the Christian life is that we don't really look at things we think we already know. I mean, how many times have you held a loony? How many times you looked at a, a loony 
But if I was to ask you right now to sit down and draw a loony, do you think you could even come close? What way is the loon facing? What side of the coin does it say, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, and what does it even say? See, I'm proving my own point. DG Regina. What's the little pattern around the rim of the inside of the, the loony? Do you know? We don't really look at things we think we already know. We don't study the familiar. And this is so often as Christians, the problem that we have with Jesus and the problem that we have with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we take him and we take it for granted. And we need to be aware of the subtle danger of always looking at Jesus yet never really seeing him. And one of the most important words I believe in the Bible is the word behold. And when I say look in the, the outline there, daily look at the glory, that's really what I mean here. I mean behold the glory of God. This word is, is so, so powerful. Just consider just a brief sampling of the word behold in scripture. Psalm 63 verse two says this, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. Ezekiel 44 verse four says this, then he brought me by the way of the north gate to the front of the temple and I looked and behold the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord and I fell on my face. John 1 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in our verse this morning, let's look at chapter three, verse 18, and listen to what the apostle Paul writes. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding and and looking are synonymous, yes, in one sense, but behold really tells us what kind of seeing we ought to be doing. It's not simply a look at him. It's a look with a a deep consideration. It's a look with appreciation. It's a look with adoration, with fixation, with transfiction. To behold something is to hold something in our vision, to let the weight of it rest on our heart and mind. John Piper says this, he says, this is how God has designed the scriptures to work for human transformation and for the glory of God. The scriptures reveal God's glory. We see this glory when we study the Bible. This seeing gives rise by God's grace to savoring God above all things, treasuring him, hoping in him, feeling him as our greatest reward, tasting him as our all satisfying good. It is so John Piper and I love it. It is a heart that is so gripped by the glory of God that it infiltrates every single area of our lives and leaves none of us unchanged. There is an unfortunate chapter break here between this verse and chapter four. And I wanna show you a connection with 3.18 and 4.6, but I'll, let's just read this section together. It's, it's so overwhelmingly magnificent, so let's just hear it together and look at this connection. Therefore, having the ministry, remember the context, transformed from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. 
We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, this this tells us here that this beholding that must take place in the Christian life is supernatural. It is produced by the spirit of God within us. It is the result of a miracle. And for those of you who've walked in here and you're not a follower of Christ, or you're not sure where you stand with the Lord and you're asking yourself the question, well, personal revival, wait a second. I'm not even sure I'm alive. God holds out to you today by the gift of his grace and the power of his spirit in a supernatural way right now. He holds it out to you. And he says, come to life in me. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, but listen, by the grace of God today, by faith in Christ Jesus, you can be raised to newness of life and you can live every day hereafter striving towards personal revival, living the life that God has planned for you. Our salvation and our sanctification hinges upon this truth that we don't just look, we behold. In the moment of our salvation, what happened was the veil came off, the blinders came off, and we could see for the first time with great clarity the beauty and the magnificence of the glory of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, the overwhelming sight of our Savior brought us low. And then through faith lifted us up. See, the transformation in our lives only happens because we savor what we see. Because we look and we love. The beauty of Jesus Christ and all that God is for us in him, it isn't just some mere set of facts, but has become, listen, if you're in Christ, it has become your supreme treasure. We see him for who he is and we long for more. This is where revival takes place. You cannot have revival until you learn to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul makes so abundantly clear. The most fundamental thing that changes us is our beholding the glory of the Lord as our supreme and all-satisfying treasure. The problem is that so many of us have stifled our ability to behold the glory of Christ without even realizing it. Other interests and other influences have dulled our spiritual senses. Our vision has been clouded by the beholding of lesser things. And you see that diminishes our beholding of what is great. When our vision is constantly occupied by small worldly things, we are tempted to yawn at the glory of God. Sarah and I were out on a date a couple weeks ago and uh, just having a great time. We were out for dinner, sitting down, enjoying some conversation, and noticed out of the corner of my eye that right beside us, 
uh, a family came and sat down. Uh, younger family, two, two young teenagers it looked like. They sat down bef- beside us and for, I think, if, if I remember correctly, about 25 minutes, every single one of them worked on carpal tunnel syndrome of the thumb. You know what I mean by that? No joke, 25 minutes, not one person in the family even looked at another person. And in that moment, I realized that they were giving up the greater joy of enjoying intimacy and fellowship with one another, laughter and fun, for the joy of something much smaller, something they could hold in the palm of their hands and whatever it was showing them. I couldn't help but think that their senses were being dulled. They couldn't even see what they were missing. (laughs) You see, what you focus on will shape you and lead you. You become in some way what you behold. G.K. Beale says that what people revere, they resemble either for their ruin or restoration. So long as we occupy our minds with little worldly things and puny worldly messages, we will shrink our capacity to behold the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is the antidote to everything that plagues us in this life. And it is the key to personal revival. Say, how do I get this back? How do I get to this place? Ray Orland Jr. said this, stare at the glory of God until you see it. I can help with thinking of Jacob. And let me take this and, and use it as an illustration. You know, Jacob who wrestled with God and he wouldn't let go of God until he blessed him. Remember that? He just wouldn't let go. He wrestled with him all through the night and just the tenacity and the perseverance. And listen, some of us need to hear this today. Listen, we can't see the glory of God because we're not willing to fight to see the glory of God. We're not willing to cling to the leg of God, to the throne room of his grace until he shows us a greater glimpse of his glory. And that's the place that some of us need to get to. Fight for it. Fight for it. In chapter three, right before verse 18, we don't need to read it, but let me just give you a summary of what Paul had been discussing. You see, Paul had been recalling the giving of the the law, the tablets at Mount Sinai. Remember that when Moses comes down with the law for the people? Moses would go up, Paul reminds us, and he would commune with God, and that glory was so intense, the glory of God and the glory of the law that was given to him, the revelation of God, and it would radiate from the face of Moses when he came down off the mountain, so much so, the radiance was so bright that he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't look upon the glory of God radiating off the face of Moses. But as intense as that glory was, Paul says it is eclipsed by the ministry of the Spirit of God in the new covenant. The ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The law is good and it's holy and it's necessary and the law exposes our sin and points to our need of a savior, but its glory is temporary. It's passing away because a greater glory has come to eclipse it. The glory of Christ exceeds the glory of the law and not just by a little. The law was the shadow, the substances in Jesus Christ. And I just want you to consider this reality for a moment. Do you realize in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no law? Just think about that. Because because there's gonna be no sin to adjudicate, no curse to adjudicate, no sin to restrain, no, no need to expose our hearts to our insufficiency and inadequacy. Listen, but the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be the virtual sun. 
You see, you cannot get power to obey the law from the law itself. You cannot change yourself. You cannot change by strict obedience to the law in your own strength. Power to change can only come from the glory of Jesus Christ. Personal revival doesn't flow from proper behavior. It flows from proper beholding. And behavior follows beholding. Can't help but think of Moses, and I'll invite the worship team up as we close. But don't leave me here. Listen, this is real quick. I can't help but think of Moses who, after engaging with the Lord, listening to the voice of God, responding in communication, conversing with God, I love in Exodus chapter 33, he had one simple request. After all that he had seen of God and all that he had been with God, you want to know what his one simple request is? I never, I just say this, I never caught this word before like I caught it this week, not in the same way. We, we say, he said, show me your glory, right? D- did you know, if you read your Bibles, it actually says, please, please show me your glory. And that, that struck me in a, in a fresh way this week and even this morning, I can just tell you that there's an exclamation in that, there was a longing in that There is a deep pleading that please, oh God, show me your glory. I cannot survive without seeing your glory. I will not be changed without seeing your glory. I desperately need to see your glory. Show me, please show me your glory. Listen, listen, if that is the plea of our hearts, I can promise you that personal revival is mere seconds away. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6, that the glory of God is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, listen, just say in your heart, God, please show me your glory, and then stare, listen, stare deeply into the beauty and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day. Stare deeply into the riches of his grace every single day, and through the pages of scripture, stare at Jesus until you see his glory bursting forth off of every page that we too might come forth out of his presence daily revived and daily radiating the glory of the God we behold. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, uh, you are truly good to answer our prayers and so our prayer this morning is so, so simple. God, please, please show us your glory. And in so doing, O oh Lord, would you transform us from one degree of glory to another? Would you give us a heart to behold you, Lord, with ever-increasing degrees For we believe there, O Lord, the key to our personal revival is found. The key to our flourishing and thriving is found. The key to our delight in the word of God is found. God, we want to behold you in all of your glory. Help us do this, we pray, in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.